My name is Kate Samino with our Center for the Study of Politics and Governance here at the Humphrey School. And I want to welcome you to the Humphrey School today. I'll ask you to silence your mobile devices, if you would. Uh, we're glad to see you and glad that you came out today. Uh, two things I'm here to do. One is to let you know about some of our upcoming programs. We've got on May 2nd, Hari Han from the University of California, Santa Barbara will be here to talk about the promise and perils of community organizing, but how community organizers can um, roll their work into longer term efforts, so that should be a good one. And then on Friday, May 3rd, we'll be down in Austin, Minnesota, uh, as part of a series that our team is leading looking at the aging workforce in Minnesota and particularly how older adults can be part of the solution to some of Minnesota's um, workforce and employment challenges. So if you would like to do a little spring road trip or if you know folks in the Austin or Southeast Minnesota area, we encourage you to join us for that uh, conversation in Austin. All these events are on our website and if you get our emails, they'll be there as well. The other thing I'd like to do is to uh, invite you to look at the back of your program. We've got a few of our institutional donors that I want to thank for their major support of our programs. We also uh, have a number of individual donors that I want to thank in general and invite you that if you value and care about these kinds of programs that bring together different political perspectives, different views on policy, that you consider joining our donor circle. That's a gift to the University of Minnesota Foundation. And I invite you to connect with me if you'd like to talk further. And I believe with that, I'll turn it over to Professor Larry Jacobs to introduce today's guest and program. Thank you, Kate Samino. And I also want to thank uh, Mike Kari for uh, helping to organize today's events. These things don't happen by accident. Um, and uh, Mike has been terrific in uh, making arrangements with our visitors making sure there's a room for us to meet in, which is harder than you would think, um, and all the other stuff that makes it work. And for Lee Chittenden, who is the executive director of our elections program, uh, as well as um, the person who runs our budgets and supervises our events. So we're really grateful. We have such a great team here. Um, very excited about today's uh, guest. Uh, this is someone who, if you are a political science student in sociology or political science, it is impossible to get a uh, degree without having to read and think about and debate Theta Scotchpole. Um, she was a towering figure, lots of books, lots of awards. Uh, she is the model. Um, and um, that alone uh, would put her in the pantheon of uh, researchers and scholars. Um, and in an equally remarkable way, uh, Professor Scotchpole has redirected her research over the last decade or so towards investigating problems, not just social science theories and methodologies, but real world problems. Um, and today, she's here to talk about the political shifts that she's been studying, both in terms of the rise of the Tea Party, uh, the rise of conservative uh, networks, uh, as well as the resistance that's formed in the last uh, few years uh, after the election of Donald Trump. Um, this is gonna be a very provocative discussion. I think at some point along the way, uh, you're going to hear things that might unsettle you, and if that's the case, we've succeeded. Um, please give a warm welcome to Professor Theta Scotchpole. So, let me get myself in here correctly. Great. Well, thank you so much for 
visiting us in our best time of year. It's my, always a pleasure to come to Minnesota. It doesn't matter what the weather's like. So <laughs> great, great, great to be here. Theda was born and raised in uh, Michigan, so yeah. she's a little more tolerant of our weather, and we're grateful yeah. for that. Um, we're going to talk for a bit, and uh, we really want you to become part of the conversation. Uh, we've got question cards rolling around. Please fill them out. I'm going to tell you what I say all the time. I love questions that disagree with what we're talking about. If you've got some dissent or some other perspective, fill it out, and you will see that I hone in on those because I think that's what these discussions are about. Um, uh, let, and let me also say why we do it this way. Um, a, a lot of our programs are broadcast on public radio or picked up by other media. Um, not all, but many. Um, and it makes the job of, of turning a program uh, into something that can be broadcast much easier if there's just two voices. So that's why we do it. Um, Professor Scotchpole, there is a lot of conversation among commentators and pollsters that Americans are sick and tired of conflict. They want people to get along, and they're no longer interested in participating in the divisions in our society. Um, you've been out doing research in, in communities outside the big metropolitan areas. What are you seeing, and how does that fit with this the narrative that we often hear? You know, I think that on the ground, across pretty much all kinds of communities in the United States, People do have a yearning for um, a new kind of politics um, that would involve politicians and citizens and active groups talking about what's good for the country as a whole or the community as a whole. So I think there is something to that. At the same time, people right down to the grassroots and even places very far from the big urban centers are organizing with others who share their sense of what America is all about and are prepared to mobilize against um, even neighbors uh, who take um, a very different view. So I think both of these things are going on at once and in fact a lot of our politics right now is about what America is and where it's headed. You uh, have been uh, conducting really fascinating research We've gotten in your car and you've driven to some of these areas far from uh, big urban areas and you've been uh, talking with a whole range of people from newspaper editors to political party people to everyday folks. What are you finding? <laughs> well, not one thing. Uh, I, I'll just explain that after the 2016 election, three of us female professors at Harvard, uh, one an economist, one a sociologist and I'm the political scientist in the team, we decided that we would try to really just get to know key local leaders in eight counties, two apiece in North Carolina, Ohio, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, that uh, went for Trump, although that wasn't the only criteria. We looked for a medium city area that, in, in most cases, those had, had flipped back and forth over the years, and then a smaller, more conservative place. And the idea was pretty, uh, simple at the beginning. Uh, it turns out not to be simple at all in practice, but it was to go to these places, and my husband, a retired physicist from Boston uh, University, and I were the first to get in the car and start driving, and spend several days meeting key leaders. So uh, the local newspaper editor in places where there still is a newspaper, uh, and um, heads of the Republican and Democratic Party, 
um, church leaders, because uh, a lot of community life happens in churches. Um, I'm increasingly interested in meeting the local sheriff because the local sheriff always knows where, what's going on. Um, and um, if there are tea parties still meeting, because I studied the tea party a decade ago, and there are in two of the counties, I'd like, I've met them. And uh, in all of these counties, we also found citizens groups that had formed spontaneously after Donald Trump was elected to take part in, in trying to defend the Affordable Care Act and push back against some of the things that were happening. So there's no simple theme except that we've found some common concerns. We started thinking that healthcare changes would be a flashpoint. And indeed, the argument over the Affordable Care Act was an important part of what Democrats, Republicans, Tea Partiers, and resistors were doing over that first year. But the Affordable Care Act wasn't simply uh, repealed. So the big changes in flows of money through hospitals, which are central to communities, and healthcare clinics, that didn't happen. On the other hand, there have been a lot of changes in immigration policy and in uh, refugee policy. So one of the themes we found is how do people react when it's not just an abstraction on television or in Washington, but actual coworkers or members of their church or people who work at a local plant that is raided or refugees that have been incorporated into the community. And also I think the final thing I'll say is that everywhere we found concern about the opioid crisis and absolute consternation across the board, shared by everybody. Why has this happened? And how are we going to deal with the absolutely devastating effects on community institutions, on families, on the workforce? So, so just to be clear, I think everyone remembers that um, shortly after Donald Trump was inaugurated, uh, there was the Million Women March on Washington. Are you talking about that, or are you talking about something more broader and more organizational? Okay, so in the United States, eight years apart, a president that really upset the other side was elected, Barack Obama in 2008, in 2016, Donald Trump. And they happened to be elected at the same time that their party controlled both houses of Congress. That kicked off in both periods widespread voluntary citizen organizing. And in the case of Donald Trump's election, the local grassroots citizens groups that are part of a larger resistance to that started organizing within days of the election of Donald Trump. Sometimes women who met through Facebook group Pantsuit Nation, or women who met just um, one woman noticed signs in the yard of a neighbor. Uh, this is not all that different from the way Tea Party people met uh, eight years before. And so they started organizing regularly meeting face-to-face -face groups that usually met in the back room of a restaurant or a library uh, almost immediately and well before those huge marches that happened the day after Donald Trump was inaugurated. And remember, those huge marches weren't just in Washington, D.C., New York City, San Francisco, Boston, Chicago. They were in 600 locations around the country. So some further people met during those occasions and went on to participate in or help to organize the grassroots resistance groups. 
I found those, my husband and I found those in every single pro-Trump county we visited in the late spring and summer of 2017. And so it was evident to us at that point that whatever was resisting Donald Trump's presidency wasn't just something happening among ultra-liberals in ultra-liberal places, but was happening among grassroots citizens, some of them Democrats, some of them independents, some of them upset Republicans in lots of different local communities. One of the most interesting and I think provocative aspects of your research is this comparison between the right-wing Tea Party or anti-establishment Tea Party and the resistance movement that has been going on and being organized in communities. You've described this as, as in both cases as a reaction against the usual transactional mobilization, let's say, that a party would do in a lead up to an election, and more a form of transformational organizing. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is pretty simple. We're in a period where we're often told that organizing is all on the internet, or it's all a matter of professionally run groups that raise a lot of money and set up a big headquarters in Washington, usually. Uh, but uh, both the grassroots parts of the Tea Party in 2009 and after, and the grassroots parts of the larger anti-Trump resistance movement, or pro-democracy movement, is the way many of them would describe themselves, um, it's been citizens who just volunteer their time. And in both cases, white middle-class women are a big part of the organizing. And I say to that, when people, I've had people look at me, especially Democratic leaders, look at me with a vague look of disinterest and slight contempt when I say that. And I'm thinking, who do you think it is that organizes things, actually? Uh, 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 you know? Uh, and, and, and to be fair, that was true in grassroots tea parties, too. I mean, the tea parties were more evenly balanced. If you attended a tea party meeting, which I had the chance to do, more evenly balanced between men and women, usually married couples, older married couples. But um, a lot of times it was a woman who was standing up at the front of the room doing the organizing or running the bake sale table that was raising the money. So in many ways, these are spontaneous, voluntary citizen groups where people are saying, wait a minute, you know, I've been a voter. I've... I've um, maybe donated to an occasional candidate or I've organized for a cause on my side of the spectrum, but I realize at this moment where this president is elected and a lot of things are gonna start happening in Washington and I hate that I've got to do more. And in fact, we have quotes from both grassroots Tea Party leaders back then and grassroots resistors now that sound like practically the same statement. I've gotta save America uh, and it, it's, it falls on me. This is a very American thing it echoes through all of American history, all the way back to what Tocqueville observed, which is there's something about Americans that is, it, it, and, and I, I'm, I'm happy to report, it hasn't gone away. We thought it had, but it hasn't. That where citizens will say, it's up to me. Uh, it's up to us. Uh, and so this is what's remarkably similar. Now, of course, the things they're fighting for are different. Some of the tactics are different. How have the political parties played a role? Have they been the organizers of this, no. or in some ways the target, or just sitting on the sidelines kind of asleep? Well, I call these extra party movements uh, because 
Let me be very clear. I mean, if you would go to Tea Party gatherings back when there were about 1,000 to 1,500 Tea Parties regularly meeting, now they're not nearly that many regularly meeting, but back in the 2009 to 2012 period there were, would you find Republicans? Yes. Would you find Republicans trying to speak at Tea Party rallies? Of course you would. Um, did they mostly vote for Republicans? You bet they did because they didn't want Democrats elected. The same would be true on the grassroots resistance side. Uh, people will say that they lean Democratic or if they're independent they mean they lean Democratic. But um, the parties themselves didn't organize these formations at the local level in either case. And one of the big parts of the research my colleagues and I are doing is starting to track over time how they come to relate to the parties. And there's one phenomenon that is pretty similar. Um, when self-organized citizens start looking at their local and state political party, they often decide, well, we could do better. And they read up on the rules and they go in and elect themselves or they run for party offices. And that has definitely happened on both sides. Um, but to a considerable degree, both Tea Parties and resistance groups have stayed separate, partly because they're trying to encourage and engage people who don't necessarily like the, quote, party establishments or the people who happen to be running the county or local party organizations. And so a big question is, do they cooperate with them over time? And the answer was that Tea Parties were usually intensely suspicious of Republicans until the moment they actually took them over or elected one of their own. And then they sometimes became suspicious of the people they elected. There's a, a very, um, reminds me of the new left in my youth, actually, a, a very uh, worried about authority. Um, um, uh, suspicion among uh, self-organized Tea Partiers and uh, almost a feeling that if you're in government you're selling out already and there was a lot of pressure put on Republicans to never compromise. It's a little different I think from what we're seeing now in the resistance at the grassroots. Uh, their relationships with Democrats in their area can range from friendly and cooperative to outright hostile depending on the Democrats, depending on whether the Democrats welcome the new energy or don't welcome it. But there's very little sense that resistance groups are trying to simply collapse into the Democratic Party in most places or uh, force it to never compromise. So I think there are some differences. You've argued that um, American politics is not decided in big cities. You were just saying that your research is far from these cities. And you know, I think some people might find that to be curious at a time when cities are growing, the suburban kind of broader metropolitan areas are growing, and especially becoming increasingly places of color. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess the, the question is, why are you leaving out cities and why are you leaving out people of color? Well, not leaving out people of color in the sense that if you go to a state like North Carolina, there are plenty of people of color who live in smaller towns and cities and in rural areas. So um, not all people of color live in cities, but I understand what you're saying. You know, we in this particular project focused more on um, places outside of the well-known liberal enclaves, not because 
big city politics and big metropolitan turnout isn't critical in elections. We know it is. But you have to look at 2016 to realize it's not enough for the Democratic Party to win. Um, Hillary Clinton, for example, lost counties outside of the big cities in the state of Pennsylvania. I'm sure it's probably true in a lot of the Midwest, too, by 80 to 20 margins, places that Barack Obama had probably lost for the most part, but he lost it 60-40 or 70-30. So one of the questions that animated this research is what's happening? Um, and, and including what is it that Democrats as an organized set of groups are doing or not doing to speak to their fellow citizens in places that are not absolute core strongholds. Um, the United States is a federated republic. There is an electoral college. We are hearing that the electoral college can be gotten rid of. Ha! It's not going anywhere. It was built into the Constitution by the founders very deliberately. And it wasn't simply to protect slavery. It was to ensure that smaller and larger states had some degree of equal say in the Constitution. And to get rid of that, you're going to have to persuade a lot of states that benefit from that in a politically polarized period where Republicans realize they benefited from it a lot to get rid of it. That's not going to happen. It's less likely than that the wall will be built. It's just as symbolic an issue. So if it's a federated republic, then what's going on socially, economically, culturally, politically, and whether the minority party has, is making an attempt to have a presence in the other place really matters. Um, so that was part of the purpose. But you know, part of this research on the resistance is also based on questionnaires that we're collecting from groups across the entire state of Pennsylvania, including in the big urban counties and suburban counties, just to make sure that what we're finding in the other places isn't unrepresentative. So, uh, and the same thing with the Tea Parties. We've put together maps of states to show where, where Tea Parties, one or more, were organized and where resistance groups now are being organized. Most states that we've studied so far have both types of groups. Um, so it's not as if things are sorting out the way Republicans and Democrats sort out in elections. These are much more widespread citizen movements. You've written for some time now about um, conservative insurgency and success. You wrote about the defeat of Bill Clinton's health reform and a book called Boomerang. Uh, you've written about the Tea Party. Uh, more recently, you've been conducting um, fascinating research about the conservative network that includes the Koch uh, seminars as well as uh, ALEC, the um, legislative group uh, among conservatives. Um, and now you've gotten to this moment. And I guess the question is, do conservatives have the upper hand? Are progressive grassroots groups kind of rebounding and giving them a fight for their money? How do you kind of assess the balance of power between these two sets? <laughs> well, it isn't settled. And we're in a period of mobilization and counter-mobilization, and we saw in the 2018 elections 
that there was quite a lot, led by women, by the way, organized in, in many cases nominated by the kinds of groups that I've studied at the grassroots, which are heavily women-led groups. Um, they were changing the face of the Democratic Party, and I don't mean Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez only. Actually, most of the freshman class uh, elected are men and women of all uh, stripes, um, both ideologically and um, uh, sociologically. So it's a very diverse group of people elected uh, by Democrats and um, citizen organizers who said to themselves, wait a minute, uh, we need to participate more, we need to vote more, we need to reach out to others, we need to argue and push back. Now, the Republican Party and the conservative movement have a pretty big head start. Um, our research groups have looked at things both from the top down and the bottom up. I've talked a little bit about the Tea Party upsurge that occurred in 2009, but before that, there was a decade worth of organizing of millionaires and billionaires on the right who channeled a lot of money into building up um, organizations to the outside of the Republican Party that both pushed Republican candidates and office holders and gave them inducements to follow a very ultra-free market set of economic policies. Uh, those are different kinds of policies than most grassroots Tea Partiers were pushing for. But so these are two different sets of pressures that have hit the Republican Party over the last 15 years like a, a two-sided tornado. And in many ways have remade that party into something that Richard Nixon would certainly not uh, recognize. I mean, it's even pretty far from what John McCain ran on in 2008. And, I'm an antiquer, and a couple summers ago, I found a postcard at a postcard show in Maine where I spend my summers giving 10 reasons why you should re-elect Ike. Uh, that would be Eisenhower uh, in what? That would have been 1956. 56. And um, boy, I mean, the 7th, 8th, 9th, and 10th reasons would make him a communist by today's Republican standards <laughs> because uh, he was going to speak up for Americans of all income levels and, and, and religions and races, and he was gonna protect Social Security and Medicare, and he, was, he wanted to make sure there was an adequate welfare safety net, and I mean, <laughs> he couldn't get nominated uh, for dog catcher in the Republican Party now. So things have really traveled. Now, they've traveled in the Democratic Party too, but I think quite not quite as far. And so um, I don't wanna suggest that the Tea Party is the only force that has remade republicanism, I think it interacts with a much more elite agenda. Um, and Donald Trump seems to be fusing the two because you know, he certainly is talking about how terrible immigrants are for America and the need to build a wall. And, and he's carrying through on a lot of those policies in a pretty ruthless way. I don't think him personally, but people around him. But at the same time, I mean, he has um, really enacted most of the major tax cuts uh, on business and the wealthy and the regulatory changes um, that, um, that the Koch network and um, um, free market-minded, libertarian-minded millionaires and billionaires organized to persuade Republicans to pursue. So those both are happening at the same time. And I don't think anything like that has happened um, to the Democratic Party. I suspect that if it did, the Democratic Party would lose elections so I'm not suggesting that the processes are parallel on the two sides, 
but um, there's a real horse race out there uh, in just about every state, certainly here in Minnesota. And I don't know how it's going to turn out. I, political scientists tell you that they can predict outcomes. Don't believe them. <laughs> you just suggested that um, Democrats shouldn't follow the lead of the conservatives who've gone pretty hard to the right. Um, and that Democrats should not move too far to the left because they'll lose all the time. There are a lot of progressives who take just the opposite lesson, and they say, wait a second, the conservatives get away with raising um, the deficit in order to cut taxes. Um, why is it that Democrats then are in the, the position of being the ones who clean up after the deficits? Why shouldn't they just move to the left and pass uh, you know, quite progressive legislation. Why wouldn't that work politically? Well, it depends a lot on what we're talking about. Um, notice that the Affordable Care Act, which whatever criticisms people may have of it, was the most equality-enhancing piece of legislation to pass in 50 years in the United States. And that's particularly true where the Medicaid expansion was fully accepted by states and it's being accepted by more and more. Um, that was not a timid piece of legislation, actually, even if it, had, it was very intricately structured to try to slither through Congress, which is really all it did. That's a technical term, slither through Congress. Um, and, it, and it's still trying to slither through the courts. So, um, you know, I don't think there was anything unbold about that. but. Progressives have to be careful that they don't say, well, those people did it so we can do it too, because the kinds of constituencies that are attracted to the two major political parties are different in various ways. Um, most Democrats believe in a degree of compromise in government. If you ask ordinary voters, most Democrats are moderate liberals. They are not they don't consider themselves on the far left edge of the party. Republicans by now, it's a different story. Most Republicans say that they want to be more and more conservative, and they don't believe in compromise. So right there, the voters that you're appealing to, plus the shrinking little group in the middle, and it's pretty shrunken at this point, but Democrats have to win uh, some of their votes. So the question is which battles to pick. And I don't think, let me give you an example. Connor Lamb, who was elected in southwest Pennsylvania with a lot of support from both union constituencies and these newly mobilized and organized women who went door to door in his district. He's pulled his punches on guns and uh, he votes um, for women's right to choose legislatively, but he says openly, he's a pro-life Catholic personally and makes the distinction between the personal stand and the public stand. He's been criticized by some people on the left and described as a conservative for those stands. Yet this is a man who talks about expanding and protecting Social Security and Medicare. In other words, he's a New Deal liberal of a full-throated kind believing in using the taxing and spending power of government to build opportunity and security for large numbers of Americans. I don't think it's very helpful to try to pigeonhole him uh, as um, a simple liberal, uh, more or less progressive Democrat. And I think it would be suicide to demand of him 
support for policies that would kill him with many voters in his district who are prepared to listen to the core socioeconomic message. The fact of the matter is people have to start where their district is and then articulate values that are shared across those districts. I think that's what's happening with Democrats now on the ground. And that's likely, that was a winner in 2018, it could be a winner in 2020. Uh, that is a little bit different from what's going on in the Republican Party because the, the constituencies are different. You've just very gracefully um, uh, canoed into the, a major debate within the Democratic <laughs> Party. <laughs> Um, we do a so lot of we're going to go through the rapids now? We're, yeah, you're yeah. in Minnesota. We do a oh, lot of canoeing yeah. in Minnesota, particularly up north yeah. in the Boundary Waters. All right. um, you can ask me about Medicare for All. Well, I think the, the question here, though, is the split in the, among Democrats and progressives, um, including resistance groups, is between folks who are economically progressive, economic populist, and those who, who uh, have a very... Um, you know, kind of almost, uh, well, they have a particularly strong stand on issues about um, uh, social uh, topics, whether it's abortion, gay marriage, or it's racial issues. Or guns, yeah. Or guns, and so you kind of move across that, and Democrats look like they're at each other's throats. Yeah, they look like that more on the media than they are in fact. And that's one thing that I guess I would say, that, um, we're in a media environment now where, where there are many multiple outlets and there are economically stressed uh, cable television outlets and they're all looking for controversy. And they actually portray more controversy than there often is. So I'm not actually convinced that Democrats are mostly at each other's throat on these issues. I think most Democrats are prepared to make a case for a movement toward more gun safety regulations. And that includes those who wouldn't accept certain measures because their constituents don't want those. Um, maybe the abortion issue is perhaps one of the most divisive, but even there, um, Senator Casey in Pennsylvania, I mean, he has uh, been elected and reelected by increasingly large margins and has done pretty well in the non-big city, non-liberal strongholds of, across Pennsylvania for years. He consistently votes for legal rights for people to make their own choices. But he also talks about his Catholic faith. Um, at least when I've been in settings talking to actual people, they're not going to each other's throats about this. The local groups that I've visited have Bernie supporters and Hillary supporters, but they don't spend any of their time talking about the 2016 election and the split between Bernie and Hillary. They were getting on with working together for the next phase, more so than happens at the DNC in Washington. So I, I just am not certain that most people who identify with Democrats on the center left are necessarily at each other's throats. Now that said, selecting a presidential candidate brings out all of these incentives to set yourself apart from everybody else. Imagine what it's gonna be like for 20 people trying to catch attention all at once and media outlets taking every little word you know, to say, well, that person is to the right and that person is to the left. And then there's Bernie who will say that. Let's face it, I mean, that's what's so endearing about Bernie is that he's on a moral crusade. 
So uh, we are entering a period where uh, it's going to be made to look like there are more dif disagreements than there probably actually are. And the big question is, will this get put back together when the time comes both to elect a president from the Democrats' point of view and to continue to fight for the state and local offices as well as the congressional offices that were neglected to a large degree during Barack Obama's otherwise, to many Democrats, appealing presidency? So let's talk about a genuine difference uh, within the Democratic Party. The leading candidate among declared candidates is Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders does not support, has not come out and supported, the effort among House Democrats to protect and expand the Affordable Care Act. Instead, Bernie Sanders says, I support a form of incrementalism that would phase in Medicare for all. Does that strike you as a, as a really a, a Is that what Bernie says? I thought he wanted Medicare for all in one fell swoop. He would prefer it in one fell swoop, but he does not see the Affordable Care Act as something he's going to fight for, yeah. whereas the Democrats in the House are unified behind that, that battle. Do you think it makes sense, and does it, the politics work, uh, and does it represent a major fissure within the Democratic Party that you've got one group who does not see the Affordable Care Act as worth fighting for. Well, to be fair, I think Bernie and many of his supporters did fight for the Affordable Care Act during the first year of the Trump presidency. But look, I, 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 um, I, I'm just not as convinced that this is a major fissure that's going to prove decisive. Now, I guess it will if Bernie Sanders becomes the nominee of the Democratic Party. Um, but I have no idea whether that's going to happen. Um, and I think there probably will be an open debate among presidential candidates about whether the way to expand health insurance uh, and health care access is to build uh, options into the Affordable Care Act and build on the Affordable Care Act and gradually expand Medicare as a matter of choice or try to replace the entire system. I don't think Democrats should in any way or for anybody in the country should fear that discussion, as long as that discussion is substantive and is out there and there is somebody to speak for um, the um, build on the Affordable Care Act or Medicare for more type positions. I expect there will be. I don't think that that debate is going to be failed to happen. I think it will be healthy. And I doubt that it will, it will result in some kind of cataclysmic suicidal fissure. Um, speaking as both an analyst and to some degree in my citizen capacity, I do think that Americans are not ready to blow up the entire healthcare system again. So I don't think that would be a winning position. And I think there's some evidence for that because it's been taken into state referenda and it has never won. You've, you've written quite a bit about the role of gender uh, in American political development. Um, you wrote a book um, called Protecting Soldiers and Mothers, which won many awards in which you recount the role of women's organizations in the efforts to uh, heal up the country and really set the seeds for what has become our welfare state. And now you're telling the story of the resistance and before that the Tea Party and the story, again, comes back to women-led grassroots organizing. Mm -hmm. 
Especially what, for the resistance. What's the common theme there? Why, why, what is it about women in the political arena that has made them so effective? Well, two things. One, which I think we saw through the period of the Tea Party, which goes back a very long ways in American civic life, because my colleagues and I actually tracked voluntary membership groups across all of American history from the revolutionary period through the 1990s. And so the Tea Party and resistance research kind of builds on what we found was similar and different across all those decades. And women uh, have always been uh, stalwarts in church life in the United States. And that, those skills transfer to organizing um, voluntary groups that have local parts that meet regularly. Um, what are those skills? They are you know, figuring out how to organize a meeting, how to get some food in there. Uh, by the way, those skills were important to all the male-led voluntary groups too, the veterans groups and the fraternal groups that dominated American civic life on the male side. It turns out that when you actually looked into it, it was mainly their female partners in the in the Rebecca's, or, as opposed to the Odd Fellows, uh, that were organizing the dinners. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, th I think those skills, and you know, Tocqueville would have appreciated this, Lord Bryce would have appreciated this, it comes out of a certain kind of Protestantism, which has actually also infected all of the religions that have come to America, which is just the, let's do it uh, in the name of the common good, and there's some concrete tasks, and those are dignified tasks to do good tasks, and we can do them for ourselves and for others that we, whose, whose activities we support. The other, the other part of it, though, on the, de on the more democratic resistance side is I think this long tradition that women developed in 19th century, early 20th century America when they were highly educated compared to women in other parts of the world and often teachers. You know, America graduated people from colleges very early. Um, and they became teachers all over the country. And, and then they had to step down like my mother did when she got married, and, and, but they were still there. And so uh, women became custodians of the public good through voluntary action. And that, I hear the rhymes of that in the resistance group meetings now, which are not just women-led or co-led, they're dominated by women. And they're dominated by women, middle-class women, teachers, medical people, uh, nonprofit leaders, small business women, uh, who, who just say to themselves, well, wait a minute, Donald Trump, that's not my sense of the community and public good. He violates my sense, and, and those who support him violate my sense of what it means to be an American and what it means to have a healthy democracy. And then, because they are Americans and because they are women, they say, if the rest of those people aren't going to do it right, I have to do it. <laughs> I, there was a great piece by Molly Ball in The Atlantic. She said the attitude in a lot of the groups she visited was like a wife who sees her husband for the 10th time fail to fold the socks correctly <laughs> in the laundry and says to herself, I guess I'll have to do it myself. There are a number of topics you haven't raised um, <laughs> that might be surprising to folks here. You haven't talked about Russian meddling and the 2016 election. You haven't talked about the Mueller report. You haven't talked about Attorney General Barr and his role in that. Um, is that because you don't think that's that important to Americans who are active in these grassroots organizing? 
Let me give two answers to that. In hundreds of interviews in these eight counties I've visited, not a single person ever raised the Mueller investigation with me. Now, does that prevent me, like everybody else in Cambridge, Massachusetts, from turning on Rachel Maddow each night? <laughs> What the latest is? No, but I, and it was very educational. This is just not where it's at out there in the country. And uh, uh, come on, I, I'm going to speak as a citizen here. I never thought that Donald Trump would be defeated or limited through a legal investigation. That's what my colleague Martin Schefter once called politics by other means in a book with Ben Ginsberg, who's a conservative that there is a tendency, and I'm afraid it's been awfully strong on the liberal side of the spectrum over the last half century, to think that there's some legal means, or take it to the courts, or, uh, you know, criminalize it. Um, no. Uh, what about actually organizing and talking to your fellow citizens and getting out to vote? And I never thought the Mueller investigation was going to result in Donald Trump being removed from office. Uh, and speaking normatively as a citizen, I think that would be a disaster. I remember what it was like to interview conservative people in Wisconsin who are still furious about the attempt to remove Governor Walker in 2011 by a recall. I mean, I literally had to practically, you know, run out of the living room of this conservative man I was interviewing because he was so angry and he thought, he suspected I'm a liberal. I mean, I don't go into interviews talking correctly, um, in, in my citizen capacity. And I finally, I had to say to him, you, you know, it was a legal pro process they used, but that's not who he saw it. And a lot of middle of the road Wisconsin people also believed it was wrong to remove a governor from office a year after he was in there, even if they didn't like his policies. So I think there's something in this whole drama that uh, we're gonna see play out over the next year. Uh, can the momentum that Democrats achieved in 2018, which was very much uh, people coming forward to run for office, people knocking on doors, getting out the vote, and that happened in a different way among minorities and young people more in cities. That happened too. Uh, can that be repeated in a presidential contest that where all the other offices are all at stake? That's what it'll take over three or four elections to change the tide of American democracy in a direction that liberals want. And it's not going to happen by some decision by a judge or a, um, uh, a prosecutor. It just isn't. And if it did, it would arouse a great deal of fury among the supporters of the people that were removed in that way. But I, it's not going to happen anyway. I mean, the Mueller report is over. Um, well, no, it isn't. But it'll go on forever. I expect 10 years from now. I'm sorry. <laughs> but but I, just, I just don't think that that's not where it's, that's not the core of what most Americans care about. That's not the core about uh, for what people who aren't paying close attention to every twist and turn of Washington, D.C. politics care about. And the divide between what they care about in Washington and what they care about at the grassroots is so apparent. You've also written about climate change, and you've been quite critical of the organized groups on the side of fighting climate change in Washington, D.C. Are there lessons from the research you've done on grassroots organizing by the Tea Party and now the resistance 
for uh, the climate change advocates? Sure, you have to turn climate change into a discussion about how we're going to change our community life and our, uh, our economy. I think that's beginning to happen. And, you know, the interesting thing about the abolish the Electoral College, I think that's a purely symbolic, uh, relatively not very fruitful procedural aspiration. But I think the Green New Deal, although I don't believe it in any way, it's a legislation-ready. Um, I do think it opens conversation. Um, and it, talk, it tries to highlight the juncture between changing the way we produce and use energy and the way in which we organize our work and community life. And that conversation is happening more than it was a decade ago. That will have to happen, and it will have to happen in states and localities. Uh, it can't simply be some kind of bargain about a carbon tax. I do believe a carbon tax with a universal rebate would have been a good idea. I still think in the abstract it's a good idea. But politics is not about policy ideas in the abstract, is it? Politics is about who we are and how we do a better job of being who we are. And so a broader group of people have to be involved in that conversation. And it's very hard in the climate change area. But I think it's about to become easier because more and more Americans realize something is happening and that probably some solutions need to be devised to it. And some of those solutions point to economic innovations that will create jobs and will create better ways of living that can be quite attractive. So that's the other thing I think has to happen. I think you have to marry a widespread participation in the, in the politics with in the political conversation and in the building of support for candidates and office holders. But you also have to have something other than doom and gloom to sell. You have to have a positive vision to sell about what we can what we can do to build a better future, not just avoid um, you know, hurricanes and tornadoes and flooding of New York. That kind of movie is going to be more and more common. <laughs> Here's a question from the audience. I suspect that a lot of the people in your research are people like you. To what extent did you talk to groups like Black Lives Matter and others who are not quite as formally organized or maybe more wary of Harvard researchers? Uh, well, the, pe the people I talk to on the right are very wary of Harvard researchers, that's all I can say. Uh, I'm not sure what like me means, but um, I certainly do talk to African Americans, um, including in the Eight Counties Project, because in North Carolina, their uh, organizations and, and presence is very important. Um, the Black Lives Matter movement is organized at Harvard. Um, I have many students who are part of it and who study it. So I do pay attention to all of the, uh, of the movements out there and think about how they interact. Uh, I have spent more time than most researchers in my profession, and certainly at universities like Harvard, trying to talk directly to conservative people. And that is a challenge because conservative people are suspicious of Harvard professors. They uh, believe as a matter of almost faith that you're coming to preach at them and to be haughty. And the only way I solve that problem is by making sure that I'm trying to get work through networks 
get into a conversation one way or another with people, stress my Midwestern roots, stress that I'm a football fan, stress that I've been married for 50 years, that I was raised a Methodist, and then when I'm in a face-to-face -face relationship with anybody in an interview, I don't find it very hard to be interested in what they have to say and to show respect for them personally. Um, but of course, it's a different dynamic getting into the relationship in the first place with groups that are more on the left, as I am identified in my citizen capacity, than it is with groups that are on the right. There are several questions here about generational differences and change, mm. and whether um, your focus on the resistance movement has included uh, young people, um, and whether this question of who's too old, and whether some folks are too young to be participating. Well, um, you know, I'm an empirical social scientist, so. Um, I try to go into the situation to find out who is participating. Um, and the report that in non-big city areas, the participants who organized these voluntary groups were mainly older white women. Um, I don't know, it is what it is, it's a fact. Um, it doesn't have to be desirable. And I know a lot of people don't think it is desirable. But um, that's what we found. Now, on campuses, it's very different, of course. Um, I'm on a campus where lots of students' groups organize. I would say across a broader spectrum of causes and ideological positions than was true decades ago. Um, and of course, most students in my classes will talk about organizing via social media which I do think, I have an undergraduate who looked at the movements organized or not organized following mass killings from Columbine on through Parkland. And it's a very interesting senior thesis. A lot of times my students do senior theses through which I learn a huge amount. And she started with the question of why it was that no matter what the scale of the killing, no matter how sympathetic the victims, and who could be more sympathetic than those children at Newtown? Every time I drive past that exit on the Connecticut Highway 84, I want to start crying. That's how terrible it is to even see the name of the town. So there was nothing more sympathetic than the tiny children, and there have been much more massive killings than the one that occurred in Parkland. So what was different? That's what my student asked. Well, her answer is two things. First of all, the new adeptness of young people using social media and the particular kind of high schoolers that were there at Parkland High included a lot of fairly young people from fairly liberal-minded families who had confidence in their ability to use these new techniques to organize after terrible things happened to their classmates. Um, but the other part of the answer was very interesting and it fits with what I've seen in the field. Because this organizing, this terrible episode, one of many in the mass killing series we have in the United States, happened after a year and a half of 
anti-Trump organizing in which all these women-led networks and various liberal networks in the cities were activated, there were a lot of allies there to help support the high schoolers in their attempts to organize across the country through social media. And that's what the research on the marches shows. The mass marches, some sociologists have studied them by taking every fifth person out of the line and getting some information on their views and their demography and how they got there. Turns out that there's a lot of older women are the core of those marches a lot of times, uh, in which the podium is the younger people. Um, not just from the Parkland group, but from the associated younger people's groups organizing around these things. And the same thing I found in my eight counties. Two of the eight counties, very conservative places. One of them so conservative that a woman was fired from her job for appearing in the newspaper as a member of a local resistance group. So this is a very uh, tough environment in which to organize. Uh, when I went back a year later, they said, well, there was a group of high schoolers, one of the high schools in the town that had decided they wanted to engage in one of the walkouts uh, for the uh, for fight for our lives. And they had come to the women's-led resistance network and asked them for their support. And the network provided it behind the scenes without putting themselves forward. Well, it turns out, according to my students' research, that happened in lots of places. And so that's not something that should surprise any of us. When waves of movements unfold, they often support one another. Uh, and in this case, there were a lot of mothers and grandmothers that were involved in behind-the-scenes support. So I don't think it's a simple matter of one generation is privileged over another. I think there are huge generational tensions going on. Uh, but I don't, I, I think a lot of what's happening in the most successful movements is mutual support across those generations. You've referenced several times uh, Harvard and university campuses. I was struck by a recent poll uh, that shows that Republicans have increasingly negative views about the impact of colleges and universities. You've talked about this. What is it that's going on on universities that is alienating uh, Republicans and conservatives? And is it just a problem of the conservatives and Republicans, or is there something uh, off on campus that concerns you? Well, um, gosh, you want me to talk about campuses? All right. Um, I will say that I think we shouldn't overestimate how disaffected Republicans and conservatives are with college and college education. Um, this has been a deliberate movement on the part of um, conservative elites to discredit an institution where they think there are a lot of liberals. They're correct about that. There are. Um, and, you know, you could say, well, leftists have also engaged in that kind of thing, too. They try to discredit business, for example, if there are a lot of Republicans there. So uh, a lot of this is elite hype. And, of course, there's an entire network that hypes 24-7. Uh, and it's connected to a lot of other media networks. So anytime something unfortunate happens on a college campus, for example, uh, um, something that looks, can be portrayed as, and I use my words decisively there, uh, as an in, uh, uh, preventing free speech by a conservative, oh boy, I mean, that's just going to be all over the place all the time. Um, does it happen? Yes, it does occasionally happen. It does not happen at Harvard anymore. Uh, I happen to know Charles Murray. Charles Murray is an extremely controversial speaker. 
he came to Harvard, and Harvard uh, mobilized because it's a rich institution and it has a sense of what the issues are here, and it made sure that he was not prevented from speaking, that he was protected, that people in the audience and others could stand up and argue back and raise questions. That's what free speech is. I'm a free speech absolutist, personally. I think the way you meet speech you don't like is to talk back. And there can be issues of who gets a forum for that. But for the most part, universities are getting better at making sure that multiple voices have a chance to be heard. And come on, that's what we have to do. We're, we're not healthcare institutions. We're not there to protect people from hearing an argument or a word that they don't want to hear. We're educational institutions. And education involves thinking through the arguments of people you disagree with and articulating why you disagree with those, both on moral terms and factual terms. Now, what I just said is going to sound hopelessly old-fashioned to a lot of younger people, but I actually think most American colleges and universities are doing their best to carry through those principles. Uh, usually, the incidents that involve pe keeping people from speaking involve outside the university forces coming in and engaging in violence. That's a dilemma. What do we do about it? But it's part of a larger dilemma about increasing violence in our society uh, along uh, both ideological and non-ideological dimensions. So I actually don't think universities are, are anything like failing uh, to, to try on the free speech front. Do they fall short? Sometimes they do. Do conservative elites make a big fuss about it every time they see an instance? Yes, they do. But that's because they have a larger political agenda about universities. And most ordinary Americans still want their children to go to college. All of those right-wing elites that are attacking universities are trying to get their children into Harvard University. <laughs> Many of their children are in my classes. So I'm skeptical. Question from the audience. Where does foreign policy enter into the mix? Well, it does. I but I don't know that it sorts out as neatly between Democrats and Republicans. I think there are divisions within each party on the question of trade policy. There are um, disagreements within each party on deployment of American force abroad and for what purposes. Um, I'm not sure I know what more to say than that. Um, Immigration probably cuts across the two parties less than it used to, but when Democrats finally get around to having to face up to what do they want to do uh, about the arrival of large numbers of Central Americans fleeing violence at the border, there are going to be disagreements that we're going to hear there, and I think we'll hear some of them in the debates. Um, and there certainly are disagreements among Republicans. I mean, Republican business elites, including local business people that I talk to, are really not thrilled with what the Trump administration is doing about immigration. It goes without saying they're not thrilled about what it's doing about tariffs, unless they happen to be, have a company that is benefiting from a given tariff policy. 
Um, but they're not going to break with Trump overall over these things, but they're troubled. And there are a fair number of conservative religious people who are also troubled at the harassing of immigrants and refugees. Um, so I think these issues do cut across divides in both parties. Right now, Trump has such a stranglehold on the Republican Party that there is not a sense that you can dissent inside that party or the people attached to it. But Trump's not going to be forever. So I, I think these issues are going to continue to be debated to some degree across party lines. You've been talking about the rise of Donald Trump and the ethnic nationalism that he has championed. You've been talking about the rise of a resistance movement among progressives at the grassroots level. And I'm wondering how you would compare some of those developments to your longstanding research and thinking about European movements of the right and the left. I'm going to be real simple. It's a huge difference to have ethno-nationalist anti-immigrant movements in a third or fourth party than it is to have it in one of the two major parties in a first-past-the-post system. Um, by no means are all Republican elites or Republican office holders or Republican voters primarily motivated by uh, a desire to um, eliminate most immigration into the United States. But uh, they're faced with the dilemma of what do you do with a president who's prioritizing that issue with a hard core of supporters for whom it is an emotional core of their, what they find appealing about him. And by the way, I do think the social science research is pretty clear now that the hard core of Trump supporters are not worried about closed factories. They're worried about immigrants. That's what they say they're worried about, and that's what the statistical studies are showing. And the term I use is ethno-nationalist. Uh, it certainly is what I hear when I sit down and with, talk with Tea Party people. But that's not all Republicans who feel that way. And I just think that they feel a dilemma about uh, what to do because it all comes bundled in one party, one candidate, that wasn't Hillary Clinton and wasn't the Democrats. And so a lot of people voted and will vote again for Donald Trump. Don't, don't imagine otherwise, uh, for that reason, that it's not a Democrat and it's not, um, well, it's not going to be Hillary Clinton, and we, I, we don't know who it's going to be, but whoever it is, it will be, I don't want that person. Um, so let me, let me put the question more sharply. There are uh, academics and political observers who are writing about the end of democracy in America, who are making comparisons to the decline of the Weimar Republic and the rise of Hitler. Do you see those uh, as viable, helpful parallels to thinking about America today? It's really hard to talk about Nazi Germany in any conversation because um, all of our historical memory of Nazi Germany is how it ended up. It's not how it started. I don't think that anything happening in the United States right now is any exact parallel to Nazi Germany. But I do think that if you go back to Europe in the 1930s, in the early 1930s, and I've talked with some of my older friends whose families immigrated from Europe during that period, and they feel some of this too in their bones. 
this kind of coming together of economic elites who are trying to game the system to get big changes that they see as to their advantage in the political economy with a populist movement based on out-group scapegoating. That's a very scary combination. And the only thing that stops that from being the full Monty of what happened not just in Germany, but in a number of European countries when your democracy gave way to um, fascist movements before the World War broke out. Um, the only thing that sets it apart is international war making. Well, there are people in the Trump administration who want to start a war with Iran, and they want to start a war with Iran very badly. And that'll make the war in Iraq look like uh, small potatoes if that happens. Um, I'm not saying I think that's going to happen, but we have seen a president and now an attorney general who are willing to stretch institutional norms beyond the breaking point. The judiciary is being transformed at a breathtaking pace. And some, not all, of the newly appointed judges, and I want to say that again, some, not all, of the newly appointed judges will go along with just about anything. So the question is what happens if Donald Trump is reelected? And um, I think that's when I'll get personally very, very scared. Because I do think the United States could, there's nothing written, nowhere is it written in a holy book that the United States has to remain a, f a representative republic. It just isn't, I, we know from history things can change. And so uh, unleashing a sense of no limits uh, would be truly terrifying and would put most Americans who are opposed to this, most Americans are opposed, uh, in a very tough place to decide what to do. And um, so I, I don't know that that's going to happen, but I do know that it will be a different scene, especially if Donald Trump is reelected with Republican majorities in both houses. And I am not going to rule it out. Like I told you, political scientists cannot predict the future. They tell you they can, but they're wrong. And all political scientists can do, and my colleagues at Harvard are, have thought about authoritarianism, is to talk about the possibilities, the range of possibilities. Um, so I just think 2020 will be another election that's even more important than 2018, and I don't mean that just at the presidential level. I think the question is whether uh, Democrats, despite all their differences, and there's, it's a highly varied party, and some centrists and some Republicans who are not happy can find a way to uh, select reasonable candidates, vote for them, vote for people in Congress and state legislatures. Um, and, and then if that happens, I, I think the Republican Party will begin to change. And I think that would be a blessing. I think that moving toward a Republican Party where the approximately one-third of Republican identifiers and leaders who don't like what's happening right now get their voice, start speaking up, start getting elected, 
start creating a, 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 a conservative pull for compromise on issues. That would be such a good thing for the country. Um, but you know, that's up to Republicans. And the first thing that happens has to happen is that this version has to be defeated at the polls. And that is an analytic statement. If that doesn't happen, then the country will be in new territory. Well, we've run out of time, and I've got maybe the hardest question. You've been a long time New England Patriots fan. <laughs> we noticed that you're wearing a purple blouse. Is that a sign of your new Minnesota Viking support? <laughs> well, you know, Larry, you and I go back and forth during those games every week, and, and in the offseason, too. So I wish the Vikings no ill. I'm hoping that they get an offensive line. Uh, I think you can, thank you very much. Can, <laughs> you should hope that the Patriots can get another tight end or two. I don't think we play each other this year, so let's hope for the Super Bowl. Theta Scotchpole, thank you so much for being with us.